Um, we're, we're not having, if this is your first Wednesday back, we're not having a time of worship and song um, like we used to. Um, we're dedicating the entire hour to teaching, and we're doing that with our kids too. And so it's been kind of funny because I was wondering how it was going to work out on, like, could we all get in here in time? But it looks like everyone's so excited about dropping off their kids that, in fact, y'all are earlier than normal. So that's interesting. Um, it's a good, good byproduct, I guess. So we're going to be in Matthew tonight. This will be our second study in Matthew, and this will be our last study in Matthew for the purposes of, of this particular overview. And um, so you can turn there. I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive right in. Lord, we come to you now, and we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the opportunity we have um, each week um, to stop and to consider your word, um, to be encouraged by it, to find rest in it, to glean insight and discernment from it. And so we humble ourselves before you tonight, and we thank you for this opportunity. Lord, I pray for our discussion as we um, talk through different details. I pray that um, the words that come out of our mouths are, are edifying and encouraging, that we build one another up. Um, particularly tonight, I pray um, just that we would have um, a clear understanding of why God inspired Matthew to write what he wrote in his gospel. Um, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful that it's breathed out by you and profitable for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that we would be equipped. So we hope to be equipped tonight, and we hope to glorify you tonight. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I mentioned it in the prayer, but I, I want to give a reminder that these studies are a little bit different than a normal Bible study, that, like the kind I grew up going to. And that doesn't mean they're better or anything. It's actually just a very different approach um, for a specific purpose. And so um, it's even different. How many of y'all were here last week? Who wasn't here last week? Shame on y'all. Where were you? No, I'm just kidding. Um, so last week what we talked about was I opened up with the question, um, when I say Zephaniah, what's the first thing that comes to mind? And it was very silent, because nothing comes to mind when you say Zephaniah. Even though we studied it, there's nothing that first, oh, that, what jumps to my mind is, um, it's, we're less familiar with it. We're, we're less familiar with most of the um, Old Testament, uh, the, the prophets, especially the minor prophets. And so every time we dug into these minor prophets, which we spent the majority of this last semester doing, it was, there was always something new and something exciting and something that we haven't seen before because we're so unfamiliar. But then when I said, what jumps into your mind when I say the Gospel of Matthew? And it was a Sermon on the Mount and you know, the healing. And there was a long list of things. And the, the, the thing I was trying to draw out on that is that we're far more familiar with, with the text now. When we were going through the Old Testament and especially when we were going through the Minor Prophets, I don't think most of us were as familiar. So it was easy to find something new and something exciting. But when we talk about the book of Matthew, a lot of us know what it says. We know the gospel story. We've heard about Jesus' birth. We've heard about the healings, the ministry, the calling of the disciples and the apostles. We've heard about 
the, the arrest, and we know about the garden, and we know about the crucifixion, we know about the resurrection. These are familiar things to Christians. So it's good to remember the purpose of this study is not to go deeper in the book, which is a little bit backwards, because I think most of the time it's like, oh, we're a part of a, a, a Bible study in Matthew. Oh, what are you doing? Well, we're not going deeper. <laughs> That's, it just seems totally backwards and counterintuitive. So what we're doing is taking a different perspective. We're getting a bird's eye view. So as we continue to work through these, we're spending two weeks at a time on them, and we're getting a bird's eye view. And what that does is we're not plumbing the depths of it to find new treasures that we haven't seen before. That's not the goal of this study. Rather, we're sitting at 30,000 feet, and we're gaining perspective that will help us in knowing what the main point of Matthew is and how we might be better informed when the time comes to dig deeper. So hopefully, tonight when you walk away, you'll be able to answer questions like, well, where should I go if I want to consider the authority of Christ? Or where should I go if I want to consider what discipleship and life together looks like? Because there's different sections in Matthew that tell us that. So we're trying to get this bird's eye view that will help us when we do have the kinds of studies or the times of devotionals where we're going deeper and we're plumbing the depths for the treasure we haven't seen before. And that's not to say there's not any treasure at 30,000 feet. We're just, the treasure is the view that we get there. And there are details that we'll pick up on that are different from if we were, you know, nose to the ground, low crawling through it. So, because of that, I want to continue to stress the need to take notes. I said it on Sunday morning in the preaching, and I'm going to say it again. Because of this, especially this study and the approach and the fact that we're in text that we're more familiar with and we're taking from a different perspective, we need to take notes because a lot of the notes that you'll take and hopefully the thoughts and the ideas that you'll take from this are things that will aid you in the future, things that will help you when you study this, things that will help you as a reference material where it's like, well, where do I go if I want to study judgment? Well, if you have notes, you'll be like, oh, we, that was the, you know, these chapters in, in Matthew. So I really want to encourage you to take notes. Um, you don't have to take exhaustive notes, even just you know, some main points. And I try when I'm teaching to, to say, okay, that, this is a good thing to write down, or you might consider you know, jotting this down or whatever because it's something that would be good for reference. So, review. What we're, we spent the majority of our time last week, probably three-fourths of our time, in the intertestamental period because... There were 400 years from the end of Malachi to the beginning of Matthew. And it was, a, it was a time of what they call silence because there were no new revelations from God. But be, There were no new revelations from God, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't an important time because when Jesus came onto the scene, it was the pleroma, the, in the fullness of time. And so God did something significant during those 400 years and things played out in, in an important way in those 400 years to come to the fullness of time where Jesus came onto the scene and, and, and did so in a significant manner. And so we spent some time last week looking at those 400 years. Does anyone remember what the name of this 400-year period was? There was a silent period. There was a second something. Say that again. Intertestamental period, the Second Temple Judaism. Second Temple Judaism. Does anyone else remember any details from last week that stuck out that might help us to have some good understanding as far as context and timing? What were some other things that we learned about? Alexander the Great. Who was Alexander the Great? What role did he play? Conqueror. 
Yep. Yeah, that's right. We, we talked about Alexander the Great as sort of like the dad on my Greek, big fat Greek wedding, where everything would be better if everything was more Greek. And, you know, you'd ask for a word, tell me a word, I'll tell you the Greek. And so um, uh, he didn't spray Windex on everything, but he was very Greek. Um, so Alexander the Great was his goal. It's interesting because his goal was unity. And his perspective that we didn't really talk about last week was that he thought you could achieve unity through uniformity. So he thought, I can make everybody more unified if I make everybody more Greek. So his, his goal to meet, reach unity was uniformity, and that was through Hellenization or Greekifying everybody more. And so he, he tried to make everyone more Greek, and he was very powerful. And there were people who came after him. Who were some of the other leaders that came after him? Because under him, the Jews didn't suffer all that much because he wanted them to be more Greek, but if they weren't, all right, you're lost. It wasn't as, 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 as big of an ordeal for him uh, for, the most, for the most part. Does anyone remember Antiochus Epiphanes? Antiochus Epiphanes? Does anyone remember what Epiphanes means? Manifest of God. There's a good example of why you take notes, because there's no way you pulled that. Manifest of God. Manifest of God. So if someone takes the name Antiochus, Manifest of God, he's probably not the most humble person. This guy was a crazy person. He was insane. He was violent. Um, he was very oppressive. What, what was the big thing that he did that was sort of the uh, thing that uh, really upset the Jews? Yeah, he, he slaughtered a pig, sacrificed a pig on the holy altar. Well, clearly the Jews would not appreciate a pig being slaughtered on the holy altar. And he did it as a means of, of exercising power. So, who was the guy who said, you know what, we're not, we're not going to have any more pig slaughtering up on the holy altar? It, the hammer, right? So it started with his dad, the big hammer. Mattathias, and then, um, the, then Judas um, Maccabeus. This is the, the time of the Maccabeans. And so um, he, he came through, and he was known as the hammer. He was one of, like I think, five sons that he had, but he was the hammer. And um, they uh, won some power back. And that, this is significant to understand where they are, because they won power back, they got some concessions, it was no longer... Because before, with the rule that was going on, it was a capital crime, meaning we will kill you if you have Hebrew Scriptures. Now, if you have the Septuagint, that's totally cool, because that's the Greek version of the Hebrew Scriptures. You get it? it was, that's, that's Greek, so it's cool. But if you had Hebrew Scriptures, we'll kill you. If you still practice circumcision, we'll kill you. If you're going to observe the Sabbath, we'll kill you. So it was bad for the Jews, and the concessions that they won through Mattathias and his son, the hammer, uh, were significant. Now, during this time, there were divisions within the Jews. The, a Jew wasn't just a Jew, that you could mean many things by saying Jew. And this is important because there's a lot of Jewishness. In fact, Matthew is the most Jewish of the Gospels. So what were the divisions of Jews? Like, what were some of the different things a Jew could be called? Sadducee. And who were those? The aristocrats, yeah. They were like, if, 
If you were a Sadducee and you wanted to find someone who liked you, you pretty much had to find another Sadducee because they were the aristocrats, the uppity-ups, and no one really liked them except other Sadducees. Who else was there? The Pharisees. Who were they at the beginning when they started? Who were they? The Reformers. The Pharisees, when, you know, we're New Testament Christians, and we see Pharisee, we think hypocrite, self-righteous, judgmental. Originally, the Pharisees were the, the original Reformers. R.C. Sproul says they were the original Puritans. They wanted to see things made right, and they wanted to reform how the, when things had gone wrong, they wanted to make it right. And so they were the Reformers. But over time, by the time the New Testament came around, they were self-righteous hypocrites. So they started different, and there's a, there's a reminder there. When you, when you want to reform something, make it better, make it right, be careful because a lot who have gone before us go down that road and they, they don't know where to stop. They don't know how to balance it, and they become self-righteous hypocrites. So you don't want to be a self-righteous hypocrite like the Pharisees. There are also the Essenes and the Zealots. The Zealots were the ones who took up arms to, to fight. In fact, they had a standoff with Antiochus Epiphanes, and they, these are the kind of people that they had a two-year siege and kind of everyone's holding their positions and rather than um, surrendering they just did a mass suicide they all killed themselves hence the name zealots so um, very different categories of jews and that's important for us to understand as we go into this study how did rome end up ruling jerusalem who invited them the jews isn't that bizarre? <laughs> I never knew that before. So you would see this oppressive Roman rule. You see these guys that come in that, um, you know, Herod was killing all the babies during the time of Christ. Pontius Pilate was the ruler who was there. Who he, While he washed his hands, he still wasn't completely innocent of, of the death of Christ. And you see these rules that are oppressive and they're anti-Jewish. But it happened that the Maccabeans, were, their rule was, they turned... They got their concessions and they won things back and then they became so violent and oppressive in how they ruled people that the Jews ring up the Roman governor, um, Pompey, and they said, hey, can you come and get things in order because this is going bad and we need you to come. So the Roman rule was actually invited by the Hebrews, by the Jews who needed to be relieved because of the oppressive rule of the Maccabeans. So... Um, that's where we land. That's what was going on to bring about the pleroma, the fullness of time where Jesus lands on, on earth. And so um, Matthew is the bureaucrat. He's the tax collector, the pencil-pushing scribbler, and he's one of four men who present a very unified picture of Jesus Christ. So there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and they present a very, there's different perspectives, sort of like, Benji's the example, if you see a car wreck and this person's on this corner and this person's on this corner, their stories aren't going to be exactly the same because of their perspective. But what they present here in all four of them is this unified perspective of Christ. Matthew's account is definitely the most Jewish and in particular presents the newness of Jesus with an understanding of its being firmly rooted in the past. So Matthew, if you're like, what's the book of Matthew about? He presents the newness of Jesus as being firmly rooted in the past. So it's not just this completely new thing, but it's this new thing that's completely rooted in the past. And, and so that's the picture that he presents. Dever mentions that most people, if you're saying, okay, 
I'm going to read this book about Jesus, who Jesus was, the ministry of Jesus, how he lived, how he was born, how he died. Most people um, picking up a book to read about Jesus would expect to find a religious innovator or a self-made man, you know, guy who pulled himself up by his bootstraps. But that's not what you find at all. And this is what he says. He says, rather, they would find someone who thought and taught, indeed, who embodied and personified what people had been taught, not just for decades or centuries, but for millennia before him. It was as if history itself had been prepared for Jesus. It was as if history itself had been prepared for Jesus. So what you find when you pick up this book, you see a Jesus who preaches as though the thousands of years that led up to him were written and designed for him, and that he embodied everything that came before The way that John the Baptist knew who Jesus was, John the Baptist was familiar with the Old Testament teachings, which had been going on for thousands of years. And he was so familiar with the Messiah, the Christ of the Old Testament, that when Jesus showed up, he just, of course this is him. He was so familiar with the Messiah and Christ of the Old Testament that Jesus showing up, fullness of time, embodying history, that John the Baptist knows that's that's the Messiah, that's the Christ. So, Our outline for this study, which we talked about at the end of the study last week, was three questions. What does this book say? Was Jesus more new or more Jew? And who is Jesus? Those are three questions we're going to look at tonight. So the first one is, what does the book say? Matthew presents Jesus' ministry in seven sections. The first section is the birth and the introduction. The last section is death, resurrection, um, death, burial, resurrection. And then the five sections in the middle, chapters 5 through 25, make up the bulk of the teaching, which comprises the body of Jesus' ministry. So we're going to dive into them. You can flip if you want, but it's really not all that necessary because we're going to take a bird's eye view. So we're not going to be going slow. We're going to be covering a lot of territory in a short amount of time. Chapters 5 through 9. In chapters 5 through 9 of this book, Matthew appears to establish Jesus' authority as a teacher and as a healer. So in 5 through 9, if you just kind of take a look at this book, um, you, you see the Sermon on the Mount, significant teaching, giving to the needy, judging others, uh, cleansing the leper, healing many, calming the storm, healing the paralytic, Healing the man with two demons. Healing the man unable to speak. So this whole section is Jesus as teacher and as healer. So if someone was reading this, let's imagine you had no idea who Jesus was. You weren't brought up in the church. You weren't converted. You, you, you'd never heard of Jesus. And you pick up a, hist- a history book and you begin to read about Jesus as this healer and this teacher. What would you begin to Think. What, 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 what might that tell you about how you should respond to Jesus? Five through nine. Jesus' authority is established as a teacher and a healer. Yep. Yep. It makes sense, and what would you conclude about this Jesus that this guy Matthew is talking about? Remember, we're taking a different perspective here. 
He must have some kind of authority. Okay? And what would that lead you to? I need to listen. Exactly. He's right. So, it, so if you're looking at this, you're thinking, well, I need to hear him. I, need, I think he's trustworthy. I'm going to trust him. I, th- I think I should maybe do what he says. I'm going to obey him. And so this whole chapters 5 through 9 is authority. It's all about authority. And when you see the authority, you see, who am I going to listen to? Who am I going to trust? Who am I going to obey? And that's what Matthew is preparing, a section on authority so that we would hear, trust, and obey Jesus. Matthew 5 through 9 is on authority. Chapters 10 through 12 are on opposition. Chapters 10 through 12, you see the 12 apostles. You see Jesus sends them out. Persecution's going to come. Have no fear. Not peace but the sword. Um, the messengers from John the Baptist. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. You see this begin to happen where people oppose Jesus' ministry. 10 through 12 is opposition. So the first 5 through 9 is authority. 10 through 12 is opposition. Why is it necessary to write this down? Well, because if you think, well, I want to, talk, I want to read about where people were opposing Jesus and how that played out, start in Matthew 10. Opposition to Jesus' ministry. And in this, it's not just that we see opposition to Jesus' ministry, but we see Jesus prepare his disciples for this. You see Jesus readying his disciples to experience it in their own faith as well. Why would that be important to someone who follows Jesus? So if, if you buy in in Matthew 5 through 9 on, okay, I'm listening. I want to hear this guy. This guy has authority. But then you begin to see opposition to what he's saying. And then you see Jesus preparing his disciples to, to meet the same opposition. What would that tell you of someone who's never, never seen this before? What would you glean from that? Yeah, which is important. Why? If, so you don't bail. Yes, absolutely. So you, you're reading this. He has authority. Okay, we're going to listen. But then people d- disagree. Well, I mean, it's the human nature to say, well, if, if people are pushing back, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this is flawed. Maybe I need to reevaluate. Maybe I'm listening to the wrong person. But when the teacher himself says, this is how it's supposed to be. We are receiving opposition, and if you're going to follow me, he prepares his disciples. You too will receive opposition. Then chapters 13 through 16, because of opposition, we have distinctions. There's two camps that form in Matthew. The opposition leads to the formation of two camps, belief and unbelief. You see those who receive his teachings, they believe him, and they move in obedience And you see those who reject his teachings, and they move in unbelief or disobedience. So we have authority, we have opposition to the authority, and with the opposition comes distinctions. There are people who follow Jesus, and there are some who do not. Jesus teaches in chapter 13 that a polarization comes when the kingdom of heaven comes. That people are polarized. There's not a whole lot of middle ground where like, yeah, we can agree on most of this, but maybe they're, no, they're, they're very polarized regarding the, the, the distinctives of, of the belief itself. So he says in chapter 13 that that's going to happen. And then Jesus turns his disciples outward regarding evangelism. So part of the distinctions, and we're going to talk about this on Sunday in Romans, part of your distinction is that you are evangelistic. 
So it's, you're going to be oppressed. The people are going to reject it. And now you're, you're in one of two camps. Either you receive Christ or you reject Christ. But if you receive Christ, you need to continue to go and evangelize even knowing that people will reject it. Because some will receive it. And so we've got the authority, the opposition, the distinctives. Jesus turns his disciples outwards. This is the part where he says, take up your cross and follow me. So he turns them outwards and encourages them to do what he's doing, to say what he's saying, and to follow him, to take up their cross, which they didn't know what that meant when he said it, right? I mean, they could have an idea of what it could mean, but they hadn't experienced the cross. And then about midway through chapter 16 is one of the most important parts of the book of Matthew. So if you're writing notes, write 16.5, very important. This is the hinge of Matthew, Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah. Chapter 16 and a half through 18 form the discipleship life together section. So we have authority, we have opposition, we have distinctions, and then he starts the discipleship. Like if you're going to live life together, if this is what you're going to, if you, if, if you agree with me, this is what life should look like. The hinge of Matthew is Peter's confession with Jesus as the Messiah. Go ahead and turn there. We're going to read this part because it's a very important part of Matthew. Turn there, underline it, bracket it, highlight it, whatever. But this is a really important part. In 1613, it says this. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Well, some say John the Baptist... And others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or maybe one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ. Guys, this is a very important part of the book of Matthew. Simon Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I want you to see that. Like, Jesus is standing in front of them, and Peter realizes you are the Christ, you are the Son of God. And not even Jesus takes credit. Like, Jesus' followers realize Jesus is Jesus, the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus says, The only reason you know that is because my father told you that. Isn't that interesting? This is an interesting, very important part. The only reason you know this is because my my father told you. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So this is an important section. They've realized something that all of history has been leading up to, and then he says, it's not time to tell anybody yet. So it's, they're outward focused. They're taking up the cross and following him, but it's not yet time to spill the beans about him being Christ. Why? Because all the Jews who are there have the complete wrong expectations of what the Messiah would be. That's why it's not time. He has to go to the cross, he has to be buried, and he has to be resurrected. 
for the time to come, for them to really understand what it means that Jesus is the Messiah, what it means that Jesus is the Christ. And so it goes on. From, this, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So he's, he's revealing to them the rest of the story that's about to happen. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. That's quite the turn of events. You are the rock on who I will build this church. You, my Father in heaven revealed it to you. Get behind me, Satan. So, so uh, Peter certainly had some growth. He had some sanctification that wasn't quite finished. Um, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So, 16 and a half through 18, the next section is the transfiguration. And so we see, following Peter's confession, Jesus teaches them about discipleship, corrects misunderstandings, and he shows his disciples how to live together. What's this life of discipleship going to look like? So this would be a section that's helpful in dealing with wrong expectations in the church, um, right expectations, reconciling conflict, um, what it looks like to actually follow Jesus. Is there a cost? That's what this section is. So we've got authority, opposition, distinctions, then discipleship, life together. And then last, which is a pretty big section, is chapters 19 through 25. And this is the section on judgment. Judgment. The conflict grows as opposition to Jesus intensifies. So if you look at 19, we've got the transfiguration, which we'll come back to later. And then 19, he starts teaching um, about divorce, the let the children come to me part, um, the laborers. Then he enters into Jerusalem, cleanses the temple, and things begin to, the conflict grows as the opposition to him intensifies as he shares some pretty remarkably different things than the Jews would have ever expected. So, it's made clear in this section that God will judge the leaders of the people. So there's people, and they have leaders, and Jesus, a first century Jew, says, I'm going to judge you leaders. You can imagine how that probably came across to them. He's going to judge the leaders of the people. He makes it clear that the temple will be destroyed. And according to Jesus' parable in chapter 25, everyone will finally be judged by God. So God is clear about judgment regarding the leaders, the temple, um, and everyone else. Everybody's going to be judged by God. So this is a section in Matthew that's important because it's saying these, all these things, my authority, the opposition to my authority, the distinctions between you, how you'll be treated if you take up your cross and follow me, what discipleship looks like, it's all important because judgment is coming. Judgment is coming, and no one's exempt. No one. So if you're wondering about what judgment looks like, Jesus' teachings are thorough on it in chapters 19 through 25. 
So that's the, what, is the, what does it say? What does Matthew say? That, that gives us a good bird's eye view of what it says. And if we want to dig deeper in any of those sections, we absolutely can. The next question that we were going to look at is, was Jesus more new or more Jew? That was really the core of Matthew's message. Is Jesus this new guy who's bringing new stuff, or is he a Jew? And if he is a Jew, how is what he's saying jiving with what we've heard for thousands of years? How does this all work? And Matthew's aim, the core of his message, is bringing the new Jew thing together. Um, Dever says, The figure was not so much the founder of a new religion as he was the inheritor and interpreter of a deep, ancient stream of God's special revelation of himself to his special people. So this does not mean that there was nothing new in Jesus' teachings. There was an ancient aspect to everything new he said. Anything that sounded new to them was firmly rooted in the Old Testament, firmly rooted in what had happened before, firmly rooted in what had been prophesied. His teachings would have had massive implications for the listening Jews and Greeks. Jesus taught that the temple would be destroyed, animal sacrifices would end. I mean, think about what would this have been like as a Jew listening to this, or a Greek who had seen the Jews and their, their, their connection to God and their way of life. The temple's going to be destroyed. The animal sacrifices are going to come to an end. The priesthood's going to come to an end. Can you imagine what that would have been like if that's all that you and everyone in your family had ever known? And there would be a significant decline in the significance of the earthly city of Jerusalem because Jesus' aim is to reach all nations, including people from all nations. So the central necessity of Jerusalem isn't as significant anymore. Because Jesus is reaching all nations. Turn to Matthew 21. The parable of the tenants is a parable that really helps to understand what the point of the book of Matthew is. And so I'm going to read this, and the question that I'm going to ask is what must this have been like for the listening Jew? Okay? So that's the question after I read this Matthew 21, verse 33. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, the master sent his son, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Imagine all the Jews sitting and listening to the teacher, the rabbi, Jesus talking. And imagine him saying, the first group was sent and they killed him. 
The second group was sent. They killed him. And then the master said, I'll send my son. And, and rather than embracing him, they took him out and they killed him. And Jesus, looking at him, says, when the owner comes home to the vineyard and, and sees those tenants eye to eye, the people that he allowed to, to stay in his place, that he still owned, that was still completely his, when he sees them, what do you think he's going to do to those tenants? And they said to him, well, he will put those wretches to miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Well, they've got a very sound answer. The master of the house isn't going to put up with that. He's going to kick them out, and he's going to give that beautiful piece of property to someone who will do what he wants with it, to someone who will respect and, and give them the fruits in their seasons. And in 42, Jesus says, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you ethnic Israelites, and given to people who will produce its fruits. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his, his parables, I said terribles, did you see that? It's a total slip, but it fits. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Wow. Way to go. Um, they perceived he was speaking about them. What must it have been like for the listening chief priests and Pharisees to hear Jesus say this? What would be the emotions and the reactions? How would that have felt? How would that have seemed? Angry? How dare you? Blasphemy, yeah. Well, what might it have been like for the people who were starting to listen to and follow Jesus? Do what? Hooray. I saw a head nod, a fist pump, and a hooray. I'm sure all of those things were present um, with them. Yeah, that would have been remarkable, right? To hear Jesus look at the, the chief priests and the Pharisees. You're, this isn't yours anymore. We're going to give it to someone who's going to produce fruit rather than kill the people who the master sends. Absolutely remarkable time here. To the listening Jew, it must have been remarkable. So we, we're going to transition now to focus on Jesus as the Jew because at this point you could be like, man, Jesus really hated the Jews. No, no. He didn't really hate the Jews. He had more for them than anyone had ever had for them. He came to fulfill things that they, did, they could only have dreamed of. So in this part where he looks at them and says, it's going to be taken from you, there are some of those Jews who would follow Christ. They would become known as one of two groups known as Jewish Christians in the earliest days. There were only two groups left to be. One of them was Jewish Christians, and that, that's who many of them would become. So he didn't hate Jews because Jesus himself was a Jew. Matthew's opening line is, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
That's a very Jewish statement, is it not? The, the forefathers of the Jewish faith, the very opening line of Matthew is not to, look, we don't want them to like, think Jesus is too Jewish. You don't want to like, let's, let's like tone down, turn down the volume on the Jew thing because Jesus is doing some new stuff. No, not at all. The opening line is like the most Jewish you can get. Son of David, son of Abraham. The very Jewish introduction that has everything to do with Jesus' identity. The first century AD was a very formative time for Judaism. Why? What do we know so far? Why was the first century AD such a formative time for Judaism? How were they doing? Not good. Why weren't they doing good? The Roman rule. Okay, why else? Lots of divisions. AD 70. Yeah, so that's still first century. It hadn't happened yet during when this is written, but he says it's going to happen. So during this first century, it's, it's a very, very formative time um, for Judaism. Uh, there were divisions. Um, in fact, they, they say that most of the people... So we have the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Zealots. They say most of the people who lived in, in Israel during this time weren't any of those. Most of them weren't Pharisees. They were just people working. I mean, it's pretty easy to know what that would look like. They have this heritage, they have this ethnic thing, but most of them wouldn't say, oh, I'm a Pharisee, I'm a Sadducee, I'm a Zealot. Most of them were like, I'm going to go to work, I'm going to take care of my family. It's just life. The Roman system, as oppressive as it was, though it is the system that killed Christ, it provided a great infrastructure, solid, healthy middle class, which is what they go for in a good infrastructure. They had, they had roads, the Roman roads, you know, things like that. And so um, most of the people living in Israel weren't like, I am Jew through and through, or I am a Pharisee, I'm a Savior. They were just, I am here and I'm working and taking care of my family. So this was a time where what Judaism once was, it wasn't any longer. There were divisions and there was a lot of sort of just um, indifference to what it was particularly. And so, very formative time. Only two main branches of Judaism survived the Roman invasion and destruction. Rabbinic Judaism, which descended from the Pharisees, and Jewish Christianity. Like, I want y'all to understand, we got a lot of Jewish heritage in this room. Because after Rome, two main branches, there, there were other things, but two main branches of Judaism survived the Roman invasion and destruction. Rabbinic Judaism, descended from the Pharisees, and Jewish Christianity. So it's interesting, because in Matthew 27, turn there. Look at verse 23. And he said, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, said, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. 
His blood be on us and our children. That's actually one of the most anti-Semitic statements ever made, right? Nothing could have been worse for the Jews than saying, His blood be on us and our children. If, if you want someone to be guilty, we'll be guilty. And they'll be guilty. These are the same ones that Jesus looked at and said, the master's coming home. And people who actually produce fruit are going to live here, not you. You're going to be put out. These are the same ones who said, his blood be on us and his blood be on our children. So Jesus taught new things, but was not only about things that were new. He was very Jewish. The heritage was Jewish. The gospel is full of references to Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled. Some of y'all know these things. Some of y'all may not know these things. Like, who is it? Um, the the um, Brad, who's the, the guy who does the thing with the people and he, has, he says the words, the words that he says? Um, the, uh, the apologist who, um, case for Christ, uh, Strobel, yeah. Okay, thank you. He, uh, I should probably write stuff like that in my notes so I don't miss it. Um, he's got an example about how there's so many prophecies that were fulfilled that the likeliness of them being fulfilled would be like if you covered in all of planet Earth in one-inch squares, and like they were all white one-inch squares, but one of them had a red dot on the end, on the inside of it, on the other side of it, the flip side of it, and you put them all white up, and you covered the whole globe in them, statistically, the likelihood of all of these things, these prophecies being fulfilled, would be like you getting on a helicopter or a plane or whatever, and someone saying, I'm going to take you anywhere in the world to turn over one of those. And if you get the one that has the red dot, winner, winner, chicken dinner. The likelihood of a person being able to be dropped off anywhere on planet Earth and turning it over and finding the one, the one, one-inch pieces all over the globe, the one with the red dot, the likelihood of that is more likely, in fact, than all the prophecies that were fulfilled by Christ. And so when people say something along the lines of, you know, that's a, that's a pipe dream, that's a, you're putting your, your, your faith in something that has no substance, that this is not actually true. Just a couple. The virgin birth was prophesied. The flight from Egypt was prophesied. The slaughter of the innocents. The fact that Jesus was from Nazareth. The fact that his ministry was in Galilee was prophesied. The healings. And how he didn't talk much about them publicly was prophesied. So not just the healings were prophesied, but the, the way he referenced them was prophesied. The fact that he didn't talk a whole lot about the healings publicly was prophesied. Riding in on a donkey's colt was prophesied. The fact that Jesus taught in parables was prophesied. His arrest, suffering, and all the details involved. How he died, not a bone was broken. Um, remember when they pierced his side, that was prophesied. Water coming out, that was prophesied. They didn't break his legs like they normally do, that was prophesied. Judas's betrayal for 30 pieces of silver, out of a specific one, was prophesied. So he wasn't just bringing new things. Everything that, that happened in his life, the things he taught, the things he lived, the things that God allowed had been so foreordained and prophesied that, man, John, that's why John the Baptist is like, yep, you're the Christ. Uh, you see it all day long if you're familiar with it. Dever notes, Jesus was not an innovator, but the answer. He was not an inventor, but the fulfillment you cannot understand Jesus without the Old Testament. When you hear people, usually well-meaning Christians, well, I don't need the Old Testament, I'm a New Testament Christian, we can whip this right in half, I'm gonna die. all I need is my New Testament. 
Without the Old Testament, you don't recognize Jesus. You have to have it. That's ignorant. Jesus would look at you and say, that's ignorant. I love you, I forgive you, die for your sins. Go get your Old Testament. It says a whole lot about him. Beginning with the 40 days and nights in the wilderness, mirroring Israel's 40-year Exodus wanderings, Jesus displays himself as the obedient and true Israel throughout history. So this wasn't anti-Jewish. It was like, you want to know what a real Israel is? Jesus. He's the obedient son that Jacob was supposed to be but never was. So this last question, who is Jesus? Well, in 22:23, Jesus states, I am the God of Abraham. Jesus states that. In 8.4, Jesus stands with Moses, Moses and Elijah at the transfiguration, signifying the law and the prophet's testimony to Jesus. In 1.1, King David prefigures Christ as an example of the greatest king and planner of the temple. In chapter 12, Jesus refers to himself as greater than the temple, greater than the prophet Jonah, and greater than King Solomon. This is where we get the lingo of the prophet, priest, and king. This is Jesus. Because of this, he had compassion on crowds who were like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion on them because of who he was. Most importantly, Jesus was the Messiah. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. He is referred to with this title four times in the opening chapter of Matthew. The Christ, the Messiah. John the Baptist refers to him as Christ. I've already said it like 10 times tonight um, because John the Baptist knew the Messiah so well from the Old Testament. John the Baptist knew the Messiah before he met the Messiah because of all the prophecies. So when he shows up, it was obvious. Peter's confession in 16.13 is that he is the Christ, and Jesus accepted that statement. Jesus did not correct him. He is the Christ and the Messiah. Dever referring to the people's answer to Pilate's question, you know, crucify him, crucify him. Let his blood be on us and our children. Um, he says, the irony is almost unimaginable. The people asked their oppressors to kill the one who had come to liberate them more fully than they could ever imagine. Let that sink in. The irony is almost unimaginable. Crucify him. The people asked their oppressors to kill the one who had come to liberate them more fully than they could ever imagine. The message of Matthew is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of David, the long-predicted Messiah. And in Matthew 20, 28, it says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Um, this book here is the one that we're utilizing for this study. It looks a lot like the other one for the Old Testament. So the Old Testament was promises made. New Testament is promises kept because of everything we've looked at tonight and the, the promises that God made that were filled, fulfilled and kept in Christ. And in conclusion, I wanted to read this. It's just a really... Mark Dever's really smart, and he reads a lot. I don't know how he does this. He, he preached each of these per Sunday. So he's like, you know what? I want to give an overview study. So I'm going to preach Genesis this week, and I'm going to preach Exodus next week. And he did that all the way. I mean, we've been taking a lot of time and utilizing this as a resource not only did he preach them one per week, he wrote these big, crazy, amazing books. So, and in the books, it's clear that he was reading lots of other books in preparation for each of these sermons. I don't know how he does it, but I was reading through his conclusion, and he has a way of opening and ending these studies in ways that you're like, what is he talking about? And then he pulls it together. 
So um, I'm actually just going to use his conclusion tonight because it's really, um, really pretty cool. And the whole, part, the whole study encourages you to go dig deeper, and I think this does as well. It says, in the last 25 years, there's been a scientific theory gaining ground called the anthropic principle. Has anyone ever heard of that? Anthropic principle? If you have, you, you don't want to raise your hand. Everyone think you're a nerd. Um, I know, I know, I could pick out people in this room who, who have heard of the anthropic principle. Um, it's, it's after anthropos, the Greek word for man. Named at a conference in 1973 by Cambridge astrophysicist Brandon Carter, this principle says that the seemingly unrelated constants in physics have one strange thing in common. These are precisely the values you need if you want to have a universe capable of producing life. Everyone following me? No one got lost at astrophysicist. These are precisely the values you need if you want to have a universe capable of producing life. In essence, the anthropic principle came down to the observation that all the myriad laws of physics were fine-tuned from the very beginning of the universe for the creation of man. That the universe we inhabit appeared to be expressly designed for the emergence of human beings. This is not coming from a Christian group or even individual scientists who are Christians. Increasingly, it's coming from non-believing scientists. The anthropic principle relates to phenomena such as the exact strength of gravity, the nuclear force, the difference in mass between a proton and a neutron, and how all these attributes are necessary for a world like ours to exist and particularly for human life to exist. Scientists give striking examples of how the slightest change of some force in the universe would make everyone flat, or make stars explode, or otherwise just make life unsustainable. Everything is here for a purpose, it seems, from the synthesis of carbon to the weight of ice versus water. For Christians, of course, the existence of such an intelligent, purposeful designer comes as no surprise. It is his work we perceive, and this is the conclusive part, it is his work we perceive not just in chemistry or biology or physics or astronomy, but also in history. If the same God who created the earth with such specificity to the possibility of human life existing and being sustained, if he does that with physics and things like that, he's the same God who made history, who wrote history. He's the same God with foreknowledge and, and insight that's beyond our, our comprehension. And so when you see a physicist talking about the way that the earth is, and it's somehow it, the only thing that makes sense is that at the very least this is all meant to produce human life and sustain it, we can see the same thing with history. We think there is an anthropic principle at work through history too. Through history, God has worked purposely in Israel. He had a purpose in calling Israel and he sovereignly disposed her story to that end. According to Jesus, that end was Jesus himself. Abraham and Moses, David and Solomon, Jonah and Elijah, John the Baptist and even Judas were all there for him. And why is he here? Why did Christ come for us? The message is clear in Matthew. Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. And if you want one verse for practical application... Don't take a verse on mercy or humility. Consider why Jesus said that he came, which is what we talked about earlier, Matthew 20, 28. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray.
Lord, we're thankful for our time in Matthew tonight. Um, we didn't dig real deep, but Lord, I feel like we, we, uh, we got a really good picture of what your purpose was through Matthew speaking um, gospel truth. Lord, I'm thankful for Christ. I'm thankful for how our desire to be attentive to the details is a reflection of our Creator in whose image we were created. Lord, I'm, I'm thankful that, that you've done so much that is evident, and I'm thankful that you have given us eyes to see it. Lord, my prayer as we continue in these studies is that you would give us more. Give us more wisdom. Give us more insight. Let us see the beauties that are around us more. Let us look at history rightly. Let us see these gospel stories in, in the remarkable manner in which they played out according to a perfect plan from a perfect Father God. Lord, we love you. We humble ourselves before you. I thank you for this time. I pray that you'd bless everyone here tonight and encourage them in your truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.